You are listening to the Boss Business of Surgery series podcast, episode 18. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Faryal Mouchot. She is a palliative care physician who has a unique perspective on both palliative care and also has started taking control of her career path. She has a lot of lessons for us. Welcome, surgeons. Residency didn't teach us everything we need to learn to be a successful surgeon. While we spent our time caring for patients and learning how to operate, we didn't learn how to advocate for ourselves or navigate our career. I'm your host, Dr. Amy Vertries. I'm a general surgeon, certified coach, and founder of the Boss Business of Surgery series. This is where you'll learn those lessons not taught in residency. We have a very special guest. I've followed her for so long. She is going to offer us so many details about palliative medicine. Please welcome Dr. Faryal Michaud. Uh, she's a palliative care physician, and she has so much to share with us on palliative care, but also um, about her career and some of the decisions that she's recently made. So I'm really excited to hear all that she has to say. Welcome to the show. Hi, Amy. Thank you for having me. It's lovely to see you. Likewise. So now tell us a little bit about how you became um, a palliative medicine physician. Uh, what, what was that path like and how did you make that decision? Yeah, so um, thank you. So actually palliative care as a subspecialty where you could take an examination and be board certified really did not become its own freestanding subspecialty till 2006. A lot of people don't know that. So if you are practicing in the hospital and you're a you know um, older, let's say cardiothoracic surgeon and somebody comes and says, you want palliative care, they're like, I don't want palliative care. Like they practice, there are people who practice their you know, field of medicine for years without having that subspecialty. What I did know about at that time was hospice, which was mostly, you know, an outpatient setting, or we would put, you know, have a conversation and put a consultation for hospice, and then patients then would go to hospice. So it really wasn't until 2006 that palliative and hospice became a subspecialty together, where you can focus on excellent symptom management for patients with seriously ill disease or terminal disease, as well as meaningful goal of care conversation so the patients get the care they want. So that specialty actually became one while I was practicing as an academic hospitalist. So I was practicing as an academic hospitalist for years and I loved in inpatient medicine. I actually almost went to critical care medicine for subspecialty and decided against it literally like last month. And so I loved that intensity. I liked teaching. I liked being taking care of sick people in the hospital. I, I liked that acuity of illness. But what I noticed when I was doing that was a lot of people that kept coming in and out of the hospital without having a big picture conversation and or even in the ICU. You know, it was a closed ICU, so intensivist would manage the patients. But when the patient would, quote unquote, step down, then we would manage them. There would be an oncologist going in, there'd be a nephrologist, there'd be a pulmonologist, infectious disease, like name it. Those sick patients would have 10 doctors telling them something different. And as a hospitalist, my job was like stabilize them and get her out of the hospital. There really was no one having a big like if you think about it, your own primary care doc can sit down and talk to you about the big picture. There's not a big picture conversationalist in the hospital. And I just really gravitate toward that. And I was the one that would always have these 
difficult conversations with patients and their families. It came naturally to me. I leaned into that. And I always felt like people were like, oh my gosh, thanks. I'd rather do this instead. So it's almost like I liked palliative care before palliative care was a special specialty. So then when it became a specialty, I didn't have the situation that I could leave and go to fellowship. But at that time, before 2012, you could have had so many hours, let's let's say as hospice, um, like doing IDT rounds at hospice, and so many hours doing that type of work in addition to additional training. So palliative care education program or PSEP at Harvard, it's been around for almost 20 years. And it's a um, seven month program. And, you know, an extension of it is actually in Boston. And you do the training. And so I decided to do that and sat for the boards in 2012. And since then, then I completely pivoted to practice inpatient palliative care. Now, I know that some surgeons have actually looked into um, palliative care specialties as well. So can any specialty become a palliative care physician? So that's actually a very good question. I, as far as I know, you can now, you can take a board certified fellowship that you can do the fellowship and then be a palliative care physician. Most, I mean, I have seen people that have done palliative um, care fellowship that are radiation oncologists. I have seen uh, people who are OBGYN. I have seen psychiatrists doing, so you can, as long as you do a year long fellowship and sit for the boards, you can. And what's very interesting, Amy, is that so many physicians that I know always say, when I get close to my end of my career, I want to do that type of work. It's something that we're drawn to do as physicians. Right. And I mean, it makes perfect sense that it, any specialty could feed into that because we all see those cases to where we think, you know, there's, there's a better way than what we're doing. There's more than one path. Um, and oftentimes, you know, the, the metrics that we're given are not exactly what we're looking for. Just like you mentioned, like the discharging out of the hospital is not really necessarily the goal for some people when you know, they're going to come right back. Um, and also, you know, avoiding suffering. And, um, you know, I, I remember talking to our ICU fellows about how like the discussion is usually like, do you want to do everything for grandma or do you want to just let her go? And I'm like, well, <laughs> what kind of question is that? Um, and so, I mean, we really needed to get a lot of the finer aspects of these conversations. And so for those people that don't really understand palliative medicine versus hospice versus things, how would you explain um, to folks about the role of palliative medicine versus hospice and things like that? That's a great question. And I think that that's like the biggest meat of the question. A lot of time that, for example, an oncologist is hesitant to reach out and put a palliative care consultation. An oncologist think, I don't want to give mixed messages to my patients. And I always say, you know, we are not hospice. So if you were to think about it, is that the best, the best description of what palliative care is, To palliate is actually a Latin term to cloak. We are a layer of support. The purpose of palliative medicine, we are a um, multi-group subspecialty. And what, what I mean by that is that we have a chaplain on our service. We have a nurse, we have a social worker. We have obviously a certified physician, 
oftentimes, sometimes there's even a pharmacist part of that palliative care medicine group. And so as a multi subspecialty entity, we take care of the whole aspect of a patient. And our job is to take away suffering and provide excellent symptom management for patients who have serious or terminal disease and provide a layer of support for the family. And I want to say that because we are really the only subspecialty that actually it's in our training to care for the family. Like it matters to us that family understands what the care is. And in theory, everybody else thinks that too. But I think other specialties that I can think about, there's so much more patient focused. Like patient has, you know, end-stage renal disease, they're going to get dialysis. Whereas ours is like, okay, is the wife who has cognitive impairment, is she going to be able to drive this person back and forth? Like the decision to care for the patient is the whole patient with including the family members. And as a palliative care consultation, you know, in an inpatient setting, we can be introduced at any aspect of your disease. Let's say you just were diagnosed with a GBM today. Palliative care can see you. And the purpose of our visit would be, what do you think about this? What does it mean that this has happened? What would you like in this situation? What are the things that you're worried about? What are the things you're hoping for? Like really, if you think about it, allowing space for people to share all the anxiety that they have. Whereas hospice would be, say you have GBM, you've done everything, you did the radiation, you did the gamma knife, you did the you know, um, chemo, you did all the things. And now you no longer want to get ongoing life prolonging treatment then that patient and their family may decide that they want to focus on comfort care, focus only in a hospice setting, either at home or inpatient facility. So palliative care could have been with you all along the way. The very last exit off the road is hospice. Now, who makes the decision about hospice? Is that something that you tend to suggest um, when you get to that particular point, or is that how is that decision made in that transition between the two? That's a great question. So let's say that if if the family is interested in hospice, so let's say you have a patient with you know uh, stage four pancreatic cancer and they're progressing and they're very sick and doesn't look like they have a lot of time and they don't want to keep coming in and out of hospital, they don't want to have surgery, they don't want to try X, Y, and Z. If they already say that and they're interested in hospice, we don't have to get involved at all. So sometimes that's a misconception. People are like, oh, family wants hospice. Let's get a palliative care consult. If they just want hospice, you can ask a hospice liaison from a hospice agency. Like in Hawaii, we have five different hospice um, agencies and we give the option to the patient and the family to choose from. We never have to get involved. But what would happen is if they're not sure, If they're like, do I keep coming back or should I get more? Or, you know, oncologist says, well, just eat a little bit more, get stronger, then we'll see. So this whole, you know, twilight zone stage for patients and their families is very uncomfortable. You know, with cancer, inherently, there's a ton of uncertainty, but it's even more if the plan was 
if you do A, then we get to B. They did A and now they're C and they're confused. So sometimes we go in and say, <clears throat> you know, here we are, we're here as a layer of support. How are things for you? How are things going? And we will ask patients, what have the doctors been telling you, right? Because you would be so surprised, Amy. Patients are getting palliative chemo all over the chart and they think their cancer is curative. And so knowing where they are is a very first conversation. And you'd be surprised because the patient will say this and then the husband is sitting there and saying, oh no, the doctor said this is terminal. What we don't understand is even if you say it to the patient, it's such a jarring news that unless we check into how much they understood, their understanding of what's going on with their disease can be very vastly different from the reality. So sometimes that conversation is actually so helpful because the husband has no idea that's what the patient is thinking. If you can think about it, our palliative care consultation in a hospital setting we are Switzerland. We go in with no agenda. I'm not going in there thinking this patient's going to go on hospice. I'm not going in there thinking this patient's going to do more invasive things. I have no idea. And sometimes they have no idea either. But once we ask them, what do you know? And they clarify what they know. And sometimes we have to correct them if they would like to know. Sometimes they want to know the prognosis. We never offer it if they don't know and they don't want to know. But if they want to know and if we share with them the prognosis in the most realistic fashion and we always check with the surgeon and we check with the oncologist before going in because we don't want to tell a different story, right? So if a surgeon said you have three years to live, I'm not going to go in. I just want to make sure we're all on the same page. So we go in there once we really look at all the cards that this is what you know, this is where your disease is at, this is what the doctor said, knowing this, what would you like to do? So sometimes when we get to this point, patients and family will say, well, I want to keep doing everything. And we want to explain what everything looks like. So let me explain what this means. And once we have this conversation, I sort of, when I feel like they don't know what to do, instead of me telling them, this is what I would do if it was my mom, which you should never do. But <laughs> what you would do, what you should say is, what I know is some people do this and some people do that. Having this, some people do this and do that really takes away the judgment and really gives a patient out that there, there's no guilt because I'm doing what some people do. Like you literally taking the judgment out of that. So I will say, if your time is limited, you know, which their time is limited and I'm not, I don't have to say how much time. If your time is limited, what's most important to you? And so at the very end, and you know, you and I talked a little bit about Atul Gawande in the beginning is that, you know, Atul Gawande is like physicians have become shoe salespeople. They're like, do you want the blue shoe or the red shoe? And these patients, you know, in interest of patient-centered decision-making, they have no idea that the blue shoe may get them tricked and pegged in a nursing facility 12 years, and then they're going to die of aspiration and pressure ulcers. I mean, they don't know. 
So even though we are offering the choices, we sort of know what's at the end of that road. And so I think knowing what's most important to you and getting that feedback and then saying, I've seen some people do this and I've seen some people do that, then make a recommendation by based on what you told me is what's most important to you. I think you should do this. Hmm. Very, very helpful. And sometimes it's a hospice, right? What I'm hearing you say, sometimes they don't know, they don't want to stay hospice. They say, I want to stay home. If I get sick, I want to stay home. I want my family to take care of me. And so, so sometimes they're, they're explaining what hospice is. So I will say, actually, there is this type of care that you qualify for. And we call it hospice. And that's jarring. A lot of people... So Amy, what's interesting is I'm never the one to bring up the word hospice. I want them to describe what they want. And sometimes what they're describing is hospice type care. So I will say that. And then I want to make sure they understand. And people, you know, always associate, I'm not hospice, am I? They always say that. I'm not ready for hospice, am I? Because they see their neighbor, quote unquote, go on hospice and die seven days later but the reason that is, is because people wait so long to go on hospice. You could technically graduate from hospice if you are not imminent or you're not progressively declining. Now, I heard, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, is hospice, if your expectation for your um, end of life is six months or less, is there a, a, life, a line in the sand for that? Or is that is that something that I've heard? Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. So it's like you would like two physicians would say, I would not be surprised, like their their primary care physician or a specialty will say, I would not be surprised if this person is going to die from complication of this disease within the next six months. I think that's such a generous statement because I wouldn't be surprised. They are if this disease continues to progress in its natural course most likely this person will die of this disease within the next six months. Now, if they don't, no one's going to hold you accountable and say, well, Amy, you said, and I always <laughs> say, and I always say to the patients and family that, you know, it's a bell curve. Six months is most people, some people live longer, but I always say some people have a lot less time than that. Because if I tell someone who they, you know, they have six months, they're like, yeah, maybe I want to go to Vegas. Like it really doesn't, sit with them that how critically ill they are. So that's why when I give the bell curve, I say, you could live longer, but you could also live a lot less shorter. Like, you know what I mean? Um, and then allows them to go where they're comfortable with that line of thinking. Now, for palliative care, um, I know that you're an inpatient palliative care um, uh, medicine physician. Now, how about outpatient? Uh, is this something that transitions outpatient? Um, do they have those options as well? Yeah, so every state has different options. And within the state, every hospital system and medical group has a different system. Like I am currently in Honolulu, Hawaii. Um, and I work the medical group that I was a part of did not have outpatient palliative care. Uh, they only had inpatient. So in theory, you we come in as an inpatient, we have this conversation, but the best situation is to have continuity and have an ongoing dialogue. But what happens with palliative care outpatient is, you know, physicians, especially surgeons, 
only call us to come and see their patients in a hospital setting when there is a conflict where they sort of be like, this is not going well, this patient is not going to make it and the family doesn't get it. Like we are asked to, from a surgeon perspective, this has been my experience that, you know, I've been doing purely palliative care for the past 10 years. The surgeons approach me never for symptom management. The surgeons approach me for a goal of care conversation. Like, do we want to do this surgery if she's going to die? Does she know she's going to die? So that's kind of, so if you think about it, if that's what the surgeons feel like I'm good for in an outpatient setting, what would a surgeon refer to me? So, but in reality, so, so in the inpatient setting, I would say most of the consultations are goal of care clarification. Like family is quote unquote difficult or patient doesn't get it, patient is in denial, can you go in and have this conversation in a way? And, you know, we have special training, just like you use scalpel for difficult things. We use our language. So the training we have is to really make sure everyone is heard and everyone understands and make the decision. Sometimes they still end up making a decision that they want the surgery and they die in the ICU knowingly. So I think it's important for when a surgeon, for example, requests a palliative care consultation, we have no idea how it's going to go. You may have an idea that, you know, this patient shouldn't have surgery and I will go the best way I know how to let them know that their risks are high, but I can never talk families into anything. And I think sometimes in a big multi-specialty institution, there's frustration that why should we get palliative care? They couldn't make the decision. Like they couldn't change anything anyway. And that's not our role. I, our role is to, when we have a goal of care conversation, it's really understanding what they want and then advocating for that. Now, outpatient palliative care, mostly, because if you think about it, if it's a goal of care conversation, most of the time, it's like one big and one and done. But in a other institution, larger institution that they have outpatient palliative care, that's mostly symptom management. Like we do an excellent job of adjusting people's like, you know, opiates, for example, or nausea or sleep or appetite or fatigue and all of that. So that's the role of outpatient palliative care if an institution offers it. Right. I really like that, um, you know, what you mentioned about understanding what they want and advocating for them, you know, because I think that really um, we sometimes think that patients understand a lot more than they do, I think. Um, and it, and also we may not be all that great about hearing what they want too. Um, and so I think I like that uh, understanding what they want and advocating for them. Um, Whenever I, as a surgeon, refer to palliative care, um, I usually try to prepare the patient ahead of time and say, we just want to understand what you want. And what you want is a line in the sand. It's not like a plug in or unplug thing. Like I don't know where that came from in the first place about like plugging people in, but everyone thinks it's like a yes or no thing, like an all or nothing. And so I tell them, you know, the goals of care is like a a line in the sand and, and purposefully saying line in the sand because it shifts. Really just trying to understand what people want and their goals of care is how I always envision palliative care. But I really like the idea that that you're also advocating for them. Take us through um, this idea of a difficult patient and family. I thought that was a really great, before we started recording, you were telling me about how, you know, you're sometimes told, oh, there's a difficult, difficult patient and family. Now, how do you um, approach the difficult patient or family? So that's a great question. So that's sort of what got me interested in palliative care. So 
when I was a hospitalist, I would work seven days on seven days off, and actually seven days off in theory, because in the seven days off, I still had to do two to three night shifts. But the point of continuity would be a, a particular physician would take care of a patient for seven days consecutively, and then I would come on. So when I would come on, sometimes if that patient came out of the ICU, that patient could have been in a hospital for three months. And the last hospitalist had him for seven days and they were handing it to me. So if you can imagine, this is, this is the times that we actually had charts, right? The patient's chart would be like, you had to lift with two arms kind of situation. But I remember like specifically, there was one patient, I never forget this. There was one patient that was in and out of like skilled nursing facility, ICU, everything you could imagine that had gone wrong in terms of like, not that they had anything had gone wrong, but they had one complication after another complication after another complication. And patient himself could not communicate and had a very large family. And so sometimes these patients are, you know, we call them rocks, right? Like they're not going anywhere. Every day we're like adjusting the potassium and the phosphorus and get a little up on oxygen, a little bit more diuretic. I mean, these guys, like as a hospitalist, when I see a patient like that on my list, that's the last patient I see on my list because I'm not discharging this person anytime soon. So sometimes those patients are easy to have on your list because you could have five of them and you spend so little time because there's so little things to do for them. But this particular patient, I remember when my colleague was signing out to me, he's like, oh, you want to you want to round on them early because there's so many family members. Like if you go in there, you can't get out after. And I just always every time I every time I would hear my colleagues sign out and they would just always say there's a difficult family or, oh, my gosh, this one is da da da. It's interesting. It's always been my tendency that when I hear that, instead of saying, oh, yeah, let's hot potato this patient for eight days or seven days that I was on. I'm like, no, no, I would make sure I would put time out. And actually, I remember I would call the family that first day and say, I'm the physician taking care of your you know, son or husband or whatever. I'd love to see you. like I would have a family meeting with these people on my first day of service. And the reason I did that is because I realized if one person thought this patient was difficult, chances are 17 other people thought. And families are never difficult. They just want to know what's going on. And when we label them difficult and nobody wants to talk to them, they actually get more difficult because now think about it. They have less information. They're more confused. Everybody just gives them like a one minute. People come and round before they come in, right? And so I would actually intentionally would sit and have family meetings. I would bring those giant charts and open it up with family so that they kind of felt like I had nothing to hide. I had all the time in the world. I could answer all of their questions. And what's interesting is you would think that took forever, but it was like 30 minutes. And for the rest of the week, family didn't want to talk to me. Like they already knew what's going on. So I feel like every time we have a difficult patient and difficult family, do the opposite of what you're inclined to do because they're not difficult. They just want the best for their family. And frankly, if my mom's in a hospital, and has complications, I'm going to be a difficult family. Like, I wonder what's going on. And so I think if we look at it that way, the neediness of the family is not as noticeable.
It's absolutely true. I mean, this is true for any patient uh, undergoing surgery too, that, you know, there's the person that asks like the million questions, puts you on your defenses and things like that too. And really like when you drop down and think like really all that is, is that they're scared. They don't know and they're scared and they don't know how to express themselves except to ask a million questions, the sometimes the same questions and, you know, really um, just understanding where they're coming from and putting yourself in those positions. And just like you say, just like meet it head on. And, and that's really understanding what they really want. Transitioning a little bit to your um, change in your career. So tell us a little bit about um, how your career as a palliative uh, medicine physician has changed over time. Yeah. So uh, actually, when I was in California, we lived in California for 10 years. I was the director of our palliative care program. I was like inpatient, outpatient, overseeing inpatient, outpatient. I was writing grants for outreach palliative care programs for uh, Medicaid. And I was really, really involved. And when we moved to Hawaii five years ago and my husband was starting his practice, he's a radiation oncologist, I knew I was going to work part-time. So for the past five years, I have been, you know, I kind of say part-time palliative care, full-time mom, right? I'm like, we have no family here. So taking the kids back and forth and doing all the things has been me because my husband's work time commitment is more than mine. So what happened is actually was around COVID, Amy, that I was just like, you know, everybody was isolated, but so much more in Hawaii. And if you remember in the beginning of COVID, which was like 2020, about, gosh, that's about two years ago now, isn't it? And it was in March. And I have friends that are in the East Coast, and they were like flailing, like they were really struggling. They just you know, the people dying left and right, and people couldn't have good conversations, patients would come into the hospital, and they were burnt, like they had to have these difficult conversations early on, like in the ER, they had to do palliative care consultations before the patients even made it or had these conversations with families on the phone, because, you know, visitation policy and all that. So I was really noticing just this general angst in the world of this human suffering. And I thought, wait, I can't actually share some of my skills because this is a teachable tool. And I said, I, I want to do something. And I started a podcast in 2020 called Write Your Last Chapter. It's a poor choice of word. I should have called it Write Your Best Chapter. But it really talks about living your life fully till the very end and asking good questions, whether you're a patient, whether you're a physician, whether, you know, your family, your mom has dementia. So it's really focusing on how can we have soft landing at the end of our life and not crash and burn. So once I started this podcast, I just really realized that I just wanted to have that conversation about if your life is, if your life is limited, what's most important to you, but so much more upstream, right? Like you don't have to have a terminal disease to ask those questions. Like, how would you want to live your life now if this is your last March? And so all of that at that time, when I was trying to think about making more impact and doing all the things, I was actually part of uh, a group of um, women physicians, empowering women physician. It was a coaching program under uh, direction of Dr. Sunny Smith and um, Hala Sabri at that time. And I was really inspired by all these women physicians who were also life coaches. And 
you know, the life coaching that I received really profoundly changed my life. And I always say, like, I was always a happy person. Like, I was working part time in Hawaii. Um, you know, we've been mostly financially independent for for some time now. And so, it's not like I had to improve my life a whole lot. But still, there were some deep angst that I had and and life coaching that I received really helped me. And it's very much similar to palliative care, but just upstream, right? What's What do you know about what's going on in your life? What's most important? What are you worried about? And how would you want to live your life knowing? So it's the same questions for well people. And so I decided to have a life coaching um, business and I see seriously ill patients. So I have people that with terminal disease, um, I have people who are actually on hospice. Um, as a pro bono, I offer coaching for them. And I enjoy it so much because it's so much more meaningful. And I don't have to, I don't see them as a physician, even though I am a physician, I'm not their physician. But I, we can have conversations forever without being worried about, you know, time limit or I, I can only see this person once or twice or whatever and I see them in their home right so I started uh, pro bono coaching for seriously ill patients starting 2020 I still do that and then I had friends that are like oh you know I'd love to hire you I had people who wanted to work with me locally in Hawaii and so I started a life coaching um, program for uh, physician women. Now I have non-physicians in there too, some, but it's mostly physicians and it's a six months program for living intentionally. And we cover all aspects of it. So I really feel like I haven't left palliative care. I feel like now I just have more time and more clarity of what kind of palliative care, what kind of layer of support I want to provide for people. So yeah, so that's what I'm doing right now. It's so interesting because you basically define the career that you want. Because so I know that you just recently left your hospital-based job, you know, and I, I think that you're also part of the the revolution that's going on, both the coaching revolution, which we of course have seen too, as we realize that we can learn how to make our life a lot better, but also um, the revolution of the discomfort with medicine and how it seems to not quite get it right. And that it doesn't really matter about the metrics and the time and the, you know, and all the, some of the rules and obligations is that the goal is that we want to make people better. And sometimes that actually is involved doing different ways, bypassing the insurance and some of the, the, other things that have made becoming a physician um, much more not great. And I think the pandemic certainly highlighted a lot of that too, as our, our jobs, our lives and our careers changed um, that it really kind of made everyone stop and pause and think and change. And uh, you know, and I know that your just profound move to say, I'm going to just do medicine on my terms and extend your reach to more people um, is really just, I think, also an inspirational journey too. So I really appreciate you sharing that part of the story too. I've been really enjoying watching it unfold. Yeah, thank you so much. But, you know, I think the problem is this, you know, palliative care as a specialty, for it to exist and survive as its own entity in a hospital, because we're not making money. Right. If you think about it, like every like if you do surgery, you can charge or if you start dialysis, or if you do chemo, if you intubation, we don't we're not something that creates money. If anything, our argument to the C-suite so even we can exist is we are cost containment. 
in theory. That's how we can show you that this is helpful. Now, while that is true, that's not why I went to palliative care. Like I, I, if my mom wants to come to the hospital and she wants to be in a hospital for eight weeks and then die in a hospital, that's her choice. My job is never, if I have family that wants to do that, to say, okay, um, well, our data is requiring that from time of palliative care consultation to discharge needs to be five days. Or like, so all the metrics, you know, they always say measure what they treasure. Any metric that hospitals, especially particular institutions that are really focused on making money and making it move quickly through the system is they say it's patient-based, but the metrics we hold us accountable for are not consistent with what they say. So once palliative care becomes a utilization tool that you're looking at us as discharge planners, and you're looking at us that, okay, um, she's been intubated for seven days and next thing is trach, let's get palliative care come in. So every time you see, not you, but every time we are seen as a service to move patients quicker through the system is a time that I feel like this is not why I went to do it. I can imagine that that uh, can leave a pretty sour taste in your mouth. Um, on the flip side, though, I do know that a lot of healthcare expenses are in the last uh, little bit of life. And, you know, I certainly can see from a, a perspective of just, you know, practice-based medicine, um, or I guess systems-based medicine is what I'm thinking of, is that, uh, you know, cost containment in the ways of meaningful things that are also for the patients. Um, but I think if someone told me like, oh, look, your console is here and then out by five days, I don't think I'd really like that either. <laughs> so I think you bring a very, very important thing. And this is something that I was un- unfortunately unsuccessful in implementing in my institution is that I feel like palliative care or having conversations so that patients are not spending the last 30 days of their life on fourth line chemotherapy in the ICU on FIO2 of 100% of people, whatever, these conversations can't be done by me in a hospital. These conversations need to happen way early on. And I think a lot of people, they have a lot of discomfort because they think, well, what's the point of having this conversation now? Like they're doing well. Well, you have the conversation when they're well, because when they're sick, it's too late. So I think, and you know, we have learned good or bad, like there was so much uh, focus on, let's have an advanced care directives. Like advanced care directives was like the biggest thing forever, but advanced care directives doesn't say anything. All it says at the very end of my life, do you want you to prolong my life or not? Well, that doesn't say anything. And it's not clear to, you know, the patient's wife who may have cognitive impairment and they, they like, I, he said he wants to do all the things. So I think what needs to happen in interest of exactly what you said and in terms of what I think, which is I want to protect patients from receiving all these unnecessary interventions that are going to lead to their death anyway. You know, my dad um, was a diabetic and he had a lot of complications of diabetes. Like if he lived another day, they would have amputated his leg. He would have died with an amputated leg. Like he was dying anyway. So but my point is that's what happens. You come to the hospital and everybody just does and does and does. But if you have these conversations earlier, before they're sick, ideally that line in the sand that needs to move as you go along and new normal changes as you go along, this all needs to happen in outpatient 
palliative care setting. Yeah, I, I can completely agree. As one of the person who does some of the things, um, you know, we, we know that when it's not going to be something productive and useful. Um, and though, you know, a lot of times the, the surgeon is one that introduces some of these discussions too, because we're the one that introduces the most risk um, in some ways for folks. And so, you know, understanding how to approach someone. Um, and I really liked that your approach about saying some people do this and some people do this um, really lets people see where they identify themselves in those scenarios and, and really lifts the judgment. I thought that was really a genius way to go about that. Now, where can people find you both for the coaching um, aspect of it too, for physicians, non-physicians, but also um, someone who may be facing some of these end-of-life discussions? Where do we find you? So I really suggest if people are interested in what I'm talking about at all, to check out my podcast, it's called Write Your Last Chapter and start from the beginning. I mean, although you could listen from anywhere you want, but I sort of, the story unfolds, right? Why I'm doing this, why it's important. And I go through a lot of this and I recommend this to physicians, also non-physicians, like physicians, if you have, you know, parents that are aging and it's awkward for you to have these conversations with them, you can hint, hint, have them listen to these conversations. So then you can say, hey, mom, did you listen to that? What'd you think about that? So the conversation starting part of this is what I think we are good at in palliative care. And I'm hoping that that's the purpose of this uh, podcast. So if you're just wanting to learn more of how to do that, I recommend that. I also, so, and so that's called write your last chapter. It's on iTunes and you can actually go to writeyourlastchapter.com, which is my website for that particular podcast. And on it, there's some blog posts, same kind of um, teaching uh, along the way. But if they want to work with me as a coach, uh, my personal business, it's www.drfariel.com. So that's D-R-F-A-R-Y-A-L.com. And over there, you know, they can, you know, um, get on and they can, you know, leave messages for me if they need to or if they want to work with me, they can um, directly um, apply or put their information so I can work with them. It's my absolute pleasure to do that. And also, you know, I give national talks on this. So if you are an institution and you want to have a palliative care conversation, how to have these difficult conversations, I'd be more than glad to just hop on and do ground rounds for you guys. Love that. And, you know, it's interesting because I was listening to your podcast um, and I really liked how referring to Atul Gawande, where it says, you know, your last chapter matters, Um, you know, and I think that that's really just a beautiful sentiment, both your podcast and just the idea of, you know, not giving up on people, but advocating for them and, you know, advocating for ourselves all along uh, the way too. Um, I think that your message is, is such a powerful one. And I'm really happy that we get to share some of it here. Yeah, thank you so much. And, you know, uh, in the book idea that Atul Gawande they say, if every, every life is a book, the last chapter matters. You know, I've seen so many deaths in the hospital, and I know you have too. And I don't like how some of them is this hurried experience that just family didn't see it coming. The patient didn't see it coming. Every All the doctors knew it was happening, but family's completely in the dark. And I just feel like if people had upstream information and they could take ownership into that last chapter, they can have, I mean, no death is beautiful death, but they could have it in a way that it's aligned with the kind of life they want to live. 
I love it. Well, I'll make sure to put um, all these contact um, information aspects on the show notes uh, so we can find you when we need you, of course. And of course, Grand Rounds will be fantastic. And so I hope that people take you up on that as well. Yeah. And if you have physicians, you know, I have a Physicians Living Intentionally Facebook group. It's free to everybody. I try to put, you know, Hawaii pictures or poetry or stories that I think and other people share too. So you're welcome to join us. Oh, I'm so glad that you mentioned that because goodness knows that I share so many things that you post in there too. So meaningful. Um, and I've, in fact, I did this morning too. So uh, really appreciate all your wisdom and, and really just making the world just a better place. Thank you so much, Amy. I can say the same to you. I appreciate that. All right. Thanks, Dr. Marshall. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.